This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. African cichlids have been farmed in Florida for decades. But how did these popular, colorful fish find their way into Florida's industry? My guest today is Rick Bureau, well-known cichlid producer and head of Florida Exotic Fish Sales. Join us as Rick describes his journeys from Florida to Malawi and back in his early quest to make these fascinating, colorful fishes a staple in the aquarium hobby. We'll be right back after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Rick Bureau, owner of Florida Exotic Fish Sales. Hey, Rick, thanks again for uh, joining us today. Hey, how are you? Good, good. So, you know, I've known you for a pretty long time, and we really haven't actually had a chance to kind of talk maybe in, in more detail about your uh, sort of life history with cichlids. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of personal questions, hopefully not too personal. So uh, when did you first get involved in the hobby? I'm seriously involved probably when I was about 19 years old, uh, attending Florida State. Um, I did have, when we were growing up, 10, 11, 12, 13, had a, uh, a tank at home. Probably was a 20-gallon tank. And had it was just basically a, a bunch of angels, but that was not something. I, I loved it, but I really got into it when I got to Florida State. So I want to go back to that twenty gallons because you were a little kid. Do you remember anything at all? Because that was back in the early days. I, I don't know. Did they have electricity back then? They yeah, they have? sure did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yep, we did. A windmill outside making it work. So what do you remember about like filtration and all that sort of thing back then? Well, it was under gravel filters, and you know you had gravel. We, we we'd get plants. I remember we had a pet shop locally. You know, we'd go down and get our fish. They'd put them in little bags. Sometimes we got them in those little boxes, almost like the Chinese food boxes. And they had those little green. I can't remember the name of that pump uh, that everybody was using. Of course, they lasted about six months. The tanks were made out of that black putty that they made them out of. It was a tough thing because you could buy a plant. It would live for about three weeks, start to deteriorate. Of course, now plants are easy to do and make the tank beautiful. But back then, it was just an angel tank, probably some guppies, uh, maybe some grommies, and maybe some kind of a cleaner cat. Okay. So let's fast forward to uh, college now. Um, 
What were you majoring in? Maybe give us a little bit of background on why you went up to Florida State and, and what you were planning to do and how you got involved with animals up there. Well, I was actually, I was heading toward maybe being a veterinarian. Um, and then got, when I got to Florida State, I, most of my classes, my, I didn't do it the typical way. I didn't do all the basic classes like everybody did English and history. I did the stuff I was interested in. So it took me actually five years to get through. Plus, I was working my way through, so that was okay for me. But I was a science major, graduated with a BS in science, and um, my love was behavioral sciences and had some real good professors up there and just really enjoyed that part of it, how the animals interact. And then when I got into the fish, then I really got interested in it. And then the African cichlids, their behavior became a, a big thing for me. Now, I know you, you mentioned something about um, actually collecting uh, collecting herbs. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, in my apartment complex, it was this guy I used to call him a mad Englishman. His name was Clive Long. And in fact, he's still around. And if you mention reptiles or amphibians, everybody knows this guy. He's, he was probably about four years older than me. Um, but he was a, a collector, and he used to drive the roads up there all around Tallahassee, make it up to Georgia. He'd just leave it evenings, and he told me that if I ever wanted to do it, um, you know, he he paid this much for salamanders, this much for snakes per inch, blah, blah, blah. So I would hop on my little Volkswagen at 5.30, 6 o'clock and take off and head out of town. There were certain roads you could run and collect, you know, till 10 o'clock at night. Um, he'd call me sometimes and say, you know, there's salamanders are crossing. It's raining up on Lake Bradford Road. And I'd run up there and get them and bring them back to him. And then he's distributed them all over the country. And he still does it. He has a massive business. For a time there, he uh, he had about 25 people going on the roads. It was a it was a wonderful thing for me because I could make back then I could make some good money at night, still attend school in the daytime, and it was it just worked out great. I've always had snakes and etc. when I was a kid I always had them so it was no problem for me to go out there and get everything from pygmy rattlers to like I said salamanders and frogs in fact this guy he was so knowledgeable he was at a park and heard a, a tree frog croaking and he identified it as a frog that came from New Jersey and then he went to work with a local professor at Florida State and they established that this was a small colony of the same frog living in this park in Florida. And, you know, it was an amazing thing what he did. So he was that kind of guy. That's pretty cool. So I kind of want to talk about your brother a little bit, but were you looking at fish before he came down? Maybe talk a little bit about how you got into sort of the looking into the business of the fish of fish and then how your brother was involved with all of that. Okay, well, I was at school there. My brother was actually traveling with up with people. He was the bass player for the group that went out ahead of the actual up with people. They would, they, you know, 10, 12 people would hit a country and prep everybody to get excited about them. So anyway, he was on the road. By that time, I started having, I probably had about six or eight aquariums in my apartment. And I really enjoyed the few Africans I could get were probably my favorites. So we just couldn't, you know, at the time I enjoyed him. When he came to town, he set up a tank, probably my junior year. He came into town, he set up a tank and he started getting into it. And I was really into the Africans and he was started getting into them too. What we could get were just limited, erratus, polystigma, travastis, a few other items. And that was it. You know, it's all you could find. So we started hearing about an exporter in Malawi named uh, Peter Davies and contacted him. Andy was more of the, he liked the going after deals and stuff. I was more on the fish side. I liked messing with the fish. So it was a good 
mix because I could take care of the fish and he could do that. So the, that started us out. We contacted Peter Davies. He agreed to ship us a shipment. And there, our thoughts were, hey, wow, we'll get a whole bunch of neat fish and then we'll be happy. So we set up uh, aquariums in our apartments and ordered it. And it came in, and, and of course, we immediately realized we had way too many fish. We, we're going to have to start selling them. So we opened up the business called Tally Imports and got uh, started selling them. Oh, okay. So you had actually hadn't originally planned. You were just trying to get fish in for yourself. Oh, yeah. It was no plan. I, like I said, I think my life was not – I was heading in this direction. I think I just fell into it. So it was no plan except to get a whole bunch of fish, sell a few of them. Obviously, we had to, and then move on. But – when we got them in and we started selling them, people were very excited because now all of a sudden there was 30 types of fish. So we were shipping to a few people and also we were doing some deliveries, Daytona. In fact, I still have an aquarium shop that I've had since 1971. It's changed hands, but we just started doing that and moved into it. And then he called us up, Peter Davies called us up, said, hey, you want another shipment? And we said, well, sure. So that started it. So uh, I guess a couple kind of logistics questions. So uh, were these fish really expensive when you got them and you guys just were kind of independently wealthy? And also, We had how, no how, money. Okay. We had no money. <laughs> were they relatively inexpensive then or how, how were you able to get so many fish? Well, I, at the time, you know, we were two guys paying our way through college. Our, my dad was a Baptist minister and we had no money. So we just went to college on our own. But Peter Davies worked with us and what he kind of did was sent the first one and said, you know, blah, 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 sell it, send me some money. So we, all we had to do was come up with freight. At that time, the freight getting fish from Malawi to Miami and Miami Tallahassee was not killer. So we both were working other jobs. I was working an electric company, and my brother was working it for the state. So we, we, you know, we had some money that we had, we could do that with, and it wasn't killer. So we only received like I think ten, twelve boxes the first time, and we managed that, sold them. So then we had some money, and we all every bit of it went back, and we didn't give up our jobs or anything while we were doing this. Okay. I guess another quick question. Were these kind of bagged and, and shipped similarly to how fish are bagged and shipped today, or were there any differences? It was much cruder. Today, when you get a shipment of fish from Malawi or Tanganyika, they come in a styrofoam box that's a, a formed box like we use. Back then, they would buy the styrofoam, cut it to fit the box. The boxes were cardboard, were fairly good, but you know a lot of them came apart. It was four bags per box. You know, depending on the size of fish, 10, 12 fish per bag. So you could get anywhere from 36, 48, whatever. And if they were really big fish, you may only get 12. And of course, freight is almost as expensive as the fish. But back then, we could pay $7 for a full-grown peacock and, and get it landed here for like 14 15 You can't even think about doing that now. And it, it's ridiculous how much freight is right now. And then the uh, the last question I had uh, logistics-wise, did your uh, landlord care about all these tanks or it, it didn't really matter? And, well, it's kind of interesting because I had a tank. I had a, My apartment was upstairs and Andy's was downstairs, and I converted one of my bedrooms into just a fish room. Like We had a hose running out the window down the side where we drained the water. He did the same thing. And the landlord never knew. The only problem we had was in my community tank. I had this archer fish, and he was just the coolest fish. And I'd set up a wire with knots in it, and I'd walk mealyworms and crickets down it. Well, the knots, he decided those were potential prey, so he would just whack on those knots all day long, and he'd like ruin the wall behind. We had to replace the drywall or whatever it was at the time. But our landlord never knew we were there, and probably six months, eight months after we got going, we rented a 
a old house or office on Lake Bradford Road and fixed the roof and ripped everything out and converted the whole thing into our fish import facility. Now, were the regulations pretty strict back then in terms of importing and uh, selling, or were they pretty straightforward? That was very easy. I mean, um, at the airport, when we would bring the fish in, the the problem is that the fish would arrive um, Saturday evening into Miami, and then we had to quickly pick up an eastern flight into Tallahassee. We had an agent, a customs broker down that would clear them, and they just had to deal with wildlife, and wildlife, you know, was very fairly simple, fairly cheap. But the problems we had was that every second shipment wouldn't make the flight. So then it would be sitting there, so we'd have to hop in the van. We'd know it by 2 or 3 o'clock that it wasn't going to make the flight if it was coming in late on British Air. And we'd hop in the van, drive down to Miami, pick them up, drive them back to Tallahassee and unload them. Because if we didn't, then we could have some big losses. So very few regulations. Shipping out was easy. We had to do the same thing. We were making our own styrofoams by cutting it because we didn't have access to Tampa boxes for a while. That was the hardest part is coming up with materials to ship and and get the fish out. So we're going to take a break in a sec, but before we do, I want to ask you, um, when you uh, sent me some information, we talked a little bit, you had a really interesting kind of naming procedure because a lot of these fish, as you mentioned, really hadn't been in the U.S. or at least really easily available. So, so maybe tell us a little bit about how you named some of these fish when they came in. Well, you know what, what? We were not really very scientific. Now, when we first started dealing with Peter Davis, most of the fish were already known, Travasis and Aratus, and he was shipping those fish. But when we, later on, we'll get into it later, but when we started getting fish from some of the other exporters that we found over there, they were shipping from whole new areas. So the fish would have no names, and they would just send them as, you know, box three is something. So they'd want to name back so that next time they could figure out what's going on. Well, we didn't have a lot of time to look up. Most of the pictures they had at the time were of dead fish and fish that were in alcohol. You just couldn't tell the colors. So we would just name them. So, for example, Kenny Eye, which is the name of uh, Ambuna right now, there was a horse trotter that we moved to Miami, a horse trotter that came down here from Detroit, and he was racing here, and he came to the farm a couple times. And he had a horse that wasn't worth anything, so he gave it to my brother's wife. So we named Kenny I after him. His name was Ken. VC10, which is uh, Hat Malomo now, when the exporter called us up and said, hey, I got a new fish. And, and I said, well, what does it look like? So I don't know, but we just sent it out on the VC10, so we named it VC10. Avanti Alongatis, we named after my neighbor who had a Studebaker Avanti. And the list goes on and on. So we were very scientific about how we did this, and extremely, you know, rigorous in our... But you know what's really neat is probably 30 of the names we came up with are still the mainstays. They've changed the names a million times to other things, but still, when you see out there, Kenny, Isla, Coma, Longatus, Marmalade, Travasi, BC-10, all this stuff is kind of a giggle that the way we did it, you know? Yeah, that's funny. I, yeah, I didn't realize that um, you guys had named the BC-10, and, and I, I was wondering about that. That's so pretty funny. So, all right, well, well, let's take a short break, and we'll continue our discussion of African cichlids with my guest, Rick Biro after these messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. You know that feeling when you go to clean the litter box and it's a complete disaster? Yeah, we've got you covered. 
Introducing World's Best Cat Litter Zero Mess, the advanced litter that gives you two times better clumping and more odor control with less litter. Zero Mess combines the concentrated power of corn with super-absorbent plant fibers. Translation, scoop once and you're done. Find it at a pet store near you and save $2. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Rick Bureau, head of Florida Exotic Fish Sales and Cichlid Industry Guru. So, Rick, we were talking a little bit about kind of how you started in the business and how it sort of fell on your lap and then some of the uh, really interesting names you came up with. Now, um, you had made reference when you were talking about the names that this occurred when you started getting fish from other areas of, of Africa that had not seen collection before. Tell me a little bit about how you made that decision to fly over there and, and establish new contacts and, and kind of give us a feel for what it was like back then when you were sort of pioneering this area. Well, about in 1973, when we graduated, we probably received three or four shipments from Peter Davies with nothing new. And when we had asked him why, we realized he kind of was fishing the same areas he always fished. It was easy. He knew where to go and what to do. So we decided to hop on a plane and fly to Malawi and talk to him face-to-face about, you know, if he was willing to start looking at the other lake, because he was just doing two or three islands. And in fact, he was getting to the point where he was bringing fish to his area unloading them on you know a big massive rock and he that's what his thoughts were he was going to do it as easy as possible so 73 we hopped on a plane flew into malawi got a little car and drove out to his area and met with him and it soon became evident he just was not interested in doing in any other parts of the lake it just wasn't going to happen and we knew there was there had to be just hundreds of other fish that were wonderful so we were really disillusioned went back to blantyre Figured we'd kind of wasted the trip and we were going to fly on home. And we were walking through downtown Blantyre and we come across this pet shop, the aquarium shop. And it's got, you know, all the tetras and everything and stuff I consider food for African cichlids in it. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, we walked in. And then in the very back, there was probably 30 tanks of just, oh, amazing African cichlids. Just the coolest stuff we've never seen before. And the, and the owner of the shop is named Robert Fleet. I mean, his son was named Robert. His name was Eric Fleet, and he owned the shop, and he, he had the license for the entire lake because of being a hydroelectric dam, he knew everybody in the government. So he agreed, never had shipped before, and he agreed that he would try to work with us. So we showed him a rudimentary way to pack and then helped him and kind of figured out what we would do. So he set up a facility, and about a month later, shipped us our first shipment from his facility. And it was, I would say, for a brand new guy, it was just great. And from that point on, we started receiving 15, 20 boxes, and I would say 12 of them would have new types of fish because this guy could go to any island, anywhere in the lake, which other people couldn't do. And then when we went back, started going back, we would go to a new island. Like we took a boat to Lacoma Island, and here you are on Lake Malawi. You're taking a boat, takes a day and a half. You don't see any land. That, that lake is just monstrous. And then you come up with this little island out there, people living on it. Some of them maybe never getting off of their whole lives and fish that no one had seen, no one had caught, no one had been near. And this, so it was a wonderful person we met. We Later on, we started getting fish also from Stuart Grant, from these other people. And one of the amazing things is these guys, these divers they had were the most incredible 
divers, but they only had a mask, maybe. No snorkel, no fins, no nothing. So we started sending over masks and snorkels and fins and sent over a couple of hookah rigs. And then they could really, I don't even know how, I mean, it's amazing how they collected, but it was a great thing that we found this guy. Otherwise, I think we probably would have shut down if we had to keep dealing just with uh, Peter Davies. Just kind of curious, were there uh, issues with crocodiles you guys have to worry about or any type of big predators? Some of these islands had were known for having like crocodiles. And in order for the divers to go there, they would have to have the local, I don't know what you'd call them, a religious person go out in a boat. And I don't know what they did, but uh, they, <laughs> they, they, these, these, I'm telling you, it was almost an amazing thing. These divers felt like even if they never saw a crocodile, they knew one there that if they went there, war, they were going to die. They had it in their heads. So sometimes they would, you know, that these wonderful swimming guys would jump in the water where there was supposed to be a crocodile. It was almost like they were little kids learning how to swim. But we, it was kind of interesting because one of the nights when we came into a motel late, we parked our car, a little teeny weeny, little English something, and we couldn't get in the motel, so we slept in the car. So in the morning when we came out, we found out we'd parked on a game trail, some bad animals, and we were getting out of the car in the middle of the night because, you know, we had to whatever. <laughs> and when we came into the restaurant in the morning to have breakfast, they were like, they thought we were some kind of gurus from the another planet because we were on that trail and didn't get killed, you know. So <laughs> maybe they maybe they heard about us. But yeah, there was there was fear of crocodiles, but nothing ever happened that I ever heard of. Now, in the course of our discussions before, you mentioned when we were prepping for this interview that some of the cichlids became staples in the hobby and others didn't. Do you have any uh, thoughts of like, and maybe mention a couple and describe what they look like? Which ones became sort of regulars that you sort of introduced back way back then, and and, and which ones didn't, and why do you think that is? The ones that you know became stable staples in the industry, um, like Kenny Eye, um, Hap Morii, Bumblebees, the Pearl Zebras, Cobalts, Reds. These are fish that even at, you know, juvenile are very attractive. So, you know, a Kenii baby is, you know, a striped blue fish, beautiful. A red by red zebra is red when it's born, orange red. All these, a bumblebee looks just like a bumblebee. So all these fish have something attractive at all the stages of their lives. Other fish would come in and the juveniles, which most people started with, would be either no color or just something that wasn't, uh, industry just didn't want. And although the adult might be outstanding. Now, it's different for the peacocks, the Alana Karas and the Haps. All of their babies and juveniles are no color, silver, brown. But everyone knows they're going to turn into something fantastic when they get to be adults. Other fish that came in, like some of the Alongatas that we brought in, were just so mean. They were vicious. I mean, you couldn't keep two of them in the same 100-gallon tank together. They would just slaughter each other. Other fish that came in that were very interesting body forms, like Labrosis and, and Eucylus, because they got these rubber-type look, clown-looking lips. Um, they're very attractive, too, but they're, again, they never hit it as something that I would want to produce a 1,000 of them a year or 500 of them or 200 of them. And I might get a call from somebody, hey, do you have this? But they want one. So you had to make a decision. I did um, when I started breeding these fish that what was I going to raise that w I could move to almost every pet shop in some level of quantity. You know, that's how I made my decisions. And some of it was just too mean to have on the farm. Okay, that makes sense. So so if you had to list maybe five of the easiest, best cichlids to keep, which ones would you say would be those five? In my sales right here, the fish that a pet shop might order almost every order is stuff like Gold Labs, 
golobitochromus, red by red zebras, OB zebras. A lot of my stores carry my two-inch peacocks, even though they have no color. Then they'll buy the adults and have the adults and say, you know, but adults are very expensive, but you can buy these two-inch fry for X amount of dollars, and so it makes it more everybody can afford to get something and grow it up. So along that line, I'd say Kenny I, bumblebees, red by reds, gold labs, cobalts, pearls, all those fish are pretty much mainstays of almost every order that I ship out. Okay. Now uh, let's go to Miami. You ended up moving to Miami. What was the decision that made you do that? We just got tired of, there were several things. We got tired of the Saturday night drive downs, pick up the freight. And if we didn't do it, if we couldn't get down, the losses that coming in the next day could be heavy. And then we, of course, it was a real small airport up there, and we had a lot of trouble shipping out of there to customers around the country. Everything had to go through Atlanta. Sometimes it's very difficult. Flights were limited. And then supplies were very hard. We, just, we were having to make cut our own styro, bring in boxes. So we decided to make the move south so that we could get down here, be close to where the fish came in, plenty of supplies and a big airport to ship fish out of. That was the main thought. Um, there was really no thought on my part at the time to set up what I am right now, but that's how we came down here. And when we came down here, then we started bringing in fish, from, uh, saltwater fish from Singapore. Once we hit here, then we decided, besides just the, the Malawi and Tanganyika fish we were bringing in at the time, then we started a, a saltwater section in the warehouse on the property where we are now. And then we also brought in, you know, barbs and angels from other parts of the country. And we had some local people in the Keys that were doing salt. So we did that probably for a year and a half, probably with all the types of fish. We were, you know, we were almost a full-line distributor of fish for about a year and a half. Okay. And what made you decide to stop? Well, one day my brother came to me and his wife was not very happy and being here. And so they, he said he thought he needed to move on. So he went as far as he could away from here to Alaska with his wife and started, started working up there. So I took over the business. And when I did, I never really enjoyed all the salt and all the other fish because I didn't like counting 15-cent fish. And I didn't like dealing with the salt logistics of keeping the salt water and doing that, and I didn't under, it wasn't as easy back then, saltwater was very difficult. So I decided to give all that up, and I shut down tally imports, and I uh, changed over to Florida Exotic Fish Sales, started digging ponds on the farm. They were usually 20 by 40 down in the coral rock, which made almost a solid pond. You put water in it for about six weeks, and it's almost like a swimming pool because the calcium would fill in all the holes. Hey, Rick, Rick, um, do me a favor yes. and maybe maybe describe that. A lot of people don't understand what the ponds are down in Miami. Well, but back in then, everybody dug ponds. So you'd get a backhoe in here, and you have about an inch and a half of topsoil down here. If you take a digging bar or a rod or anything and you slap it in the ground, it's going to ring like a, a bell as soon as it hits the coral rock. So it's solid coral rock. We're sitting on top of old reefs. When they dig it out, you can see shells. You can see everything in it. So I'd have a guy come on the Saturday. He he had a construction company. But on Saturday, he'd come out here and just dig me three ponds. And it was so it'd be a 20 foot wide by 30, 35, 40 feet long. It'd have a walkway that kind of sloped down it so you could walk down it. Probably went anywhere from two and a half feet in the shallow to four feet. Um, then we'd we would just real quick to use it. We would take just Portland cement and make it into a real slurry and throw it against the walls with a bucket. Then we could start putting water in. But as soon as you the water started running, it would build up on the sides 
like it does on my concrete vaults now, and just it would become a solid structure, and it wouldn't leak, and it would be so it was below ground. So we, that was the cheapest way for me to get into big water real fast. Now, of course, I had burial vaults, which are the concrete vault that they put down here because of all the water. They put that in the ground, then they put the casket in it, and then they put a lid on that concrete block because water table down here is sometimes six foot down. So I had concrete vaults for my breeders. I'd put three or four males and 30, 40 females in there and then take the babies, move them out to the pools where they would grow. Now, how did Tamala, how did your wife get in, into the picture? Was she uh, enthusiastic about it or was that a... No, no. She was happy-go-lucky working at the hospital, enjoying her life when I talked her into coming here and ruined her life. No, I didn't ruin it, but she, you know, I turned her from what she was doing, which sometimes she thinks, gosh, I wish I'd stayed to what she does now. But yes, I talked her into it because I liked her being around me. So we've been working here together for probably 35, 36 years together. So I've enjoyed it. And I think she has too. But as we get older, we're ready to run screaming. But anyway, that's how it kind of started. So You've been there, obviously, a very, very long time. Um, can you describe maybe some of the major changes from back then to currently where you are now right. with the farm? About 1986, I had probably 60, 80 ponds on the five acres I have. I was occupying about two acres of it with the ponds. And we'd had several floods in which the water came up above the tanks so the fish all swam together. We had we were doing constant battle with toads, which they would come in, the same toad that will kill your dog. Um, they would lay these stringers of eggs between March and sometimes all the way into September. And the fish would eat them and die just, it was a neurotoxin. And they could wipe out a whole tank full of fish overnight. So we had somebody out there morning and evening killing toads from March till September. On a rainy night, it, you could go out there and there'd be, you know, 20, 30 pairs out there you'd be killing. And so that was one thing. And then the floods was a big problem. The two or three we had were big problems because I'd lost, you know, a big pond full of, of large predator. Halfs ends up, you know, with baby fish. You can't sort them fast enough and, you, and you're done. So we made a big decision to come out of the ground. So we started filling in sections of the farm. And we put together a concrete form, and we started pouring big concrete vaults anywhere from 10 by 20s to 16 by 16s to 8 by 16s, anywhere from 6,000 gallons down to 2,400 gallons, and slowly filled the, the uh, ponds, and I kept two or three of them for drainage. And now we're above ground. We have no toad problems. We have no flood problems. We're covered with bird netting or shade, so we have no predator birds in here. So we took the time to, it was very expensive to do, but we don't have to worry about if we have a, a hurricane and the water comes up six inches. There's no worry for me. I don't worry about hearing the toads at night when they're out there uh, singing along. It doesn't even bother me. I used to stomp everyone I saw when I was in the ground. Now I just walk by them and look at them. So it was a decision that I'm glad we made because it's really meant a big difference to us. So let's talk real briefly on cichlid nutrition. A, a lot of people that keep African cichlids are maybe aware a little bit about how diverse that is, but, but um, how have you handled kind of the diversity of what a lot of these cichlids eat and maybe talk a little bit about you know, what they eat in, in the wild and then about your, uh, your food product that you sell? Okay, well, most of these fish, you know, there's kind of this, there was this big thing that, you know, certain types of African cichlids, like the 
a, a few borny types and the labiotrophius and the a lot of the tanganicans you know if you feed them any protein at all it's gonna they're gonna bloat up and all this but when you look at what they're eating in the wild they're scraping there's their rock scrapers are scraping algae well as far as i can see them friend they found out what you know when they're scraping that they're also picking up little copepods so they're eating plenty of protein the problem with that people say is is this age-old problem that of fish keeping is that the most fun thing you do is feed your fish. And if you've got two or three people feeding your fish per day, what you're doing then is you're packing these fish up. These fish in the wild, they spend all day long looking for a, a, something to eat. And when you start pouring the fish on, they come running up the glass, they're going up and down, and they're dancing around. You tend to feed them more, and that's, that's one of the biggest problems that I have to deal with with people who keep these fish. But anyway, when we moved here, the only foods available were trout chow, catfish chow. Trout chow was too oily. Catfish chow really didn't supply anything but just a bare minimum. So we started messing around with foods, and we would bring in shrimp meal from Louisiana and fish, Manhattan fish meal. We didn't have any vitamins. Stacy came along. We started using it. We were using chicken pack multivitamins, and we had a big giant 60-quart dough mixer, and we would use uh, beech nut baby cereal to, as the binder, and we would just throw all these ingredients in, three scoops of this, three scoops of that, you know, a cup of this. Well, we found out over time, like we'd run out of something. Let's say we ran out of our paprika or our uh, pepper, red pepper, and so we would notice, well, you know, my guys at work say, hey, but the fish aren't breeding so good. Well, why not? Well, we ran out of something three months ago. Why didn't you tell me? So it wasn't like we were, this was observation that we figured out the final formula for a food that we use on the farm. And it was fantastic. It made a real heavy kind of a dough. You threw it in, the fish loved it. So there's lots of foods out there, but our customers were all the time asking, you know, your fish come in so wonderful. Their colors are perfect for the feces. Why can't we do it? I said, well, we, we're feeding them this mush food. You can't feed it. It would destroy your tank. So they said, well, is there any way to do it? Get it to us. So we took it to a company, the formula. They tweaked it a little bit and they pelletized it. And we started putting it out under the name of Stream Aquatic Foods. And what we found, this is what I use now. I use the 1.5 pellet on the entire farm. That, you know, the mush was great, but when they would hit this mush, if you were to watch them do it, there would be a cloud, you know, as they, as they got at it. And then that cloud probably were some of the vitamins and the color additives, and et cetera, that the fish needed. But then when the pellet came along, they eat a pellet. They didn't lose it. They eat a pellet. We can feed less. It's cleaner. Fish are breeding better. We've got all the colors in the food because I know there's foods out there that are reds and blues and you can feed all the different colors here but I don't have time to walk around my entire farm every day and feed three times or mix food so our food has all of it it's all natural probably the biggest problem with my food is that we don't use any color additive to make it a consistent color and depending on the shrimp time of year that they're collecting summer winter whatever my food may go from a more reddish color to a brown color because it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to use the food on the farm no matter what. But people say, well, how come your food's a little bit browner now? Are you cutting something? No, we don't put any red color dye to make it stay red. So a lot of people on these other foods, they have it, it sometimes that turns your tanks red. Ours won't do that. So anyway, this is how we came up with the product that we're feeding now on the farm. And it's just perfect for what we do. We feed it to everything. We have a nano of it and we have a bigger pellet. So... It's just very good. And obviously that's available for people if they want to get get that. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. It's good so, to aquatic foods. It comes in a 
1.5, we call it peewee, and it comes in a big fella, and it comes in a monster for bigger fish. So, And we have a, a wafer now that's just beyond belief. I mean, our customers going nuts on it. It's more for plecos and all the guppies and stuff, and they just uh, they just go nuts on it. So anyways, I'm happy with that. I'm using it on the farm. If I never sold a jar of it again, it would matter because I'm going to continue to use it. So it's it's what I'm using. That's great. So I've got a real almost the last question before we kind of shut down. But you know, obviously, I could talk to you for a while. What does the future of the hobby look like to you? Well, you know, I know that you know just from my own seeing what's going on, the real quality mom and pop stores are hard. They're hard to find now. They're out there, and the and the ones that I deal with, they just seem to understand that they have to do better than just put something in their shop. And say, there you go, sell it. They're doing everything. They're doing. They're keeping their stock fresh. They're doing a good job displaying it. Most of them do maintenance. A lot of the fish that I sell go to a fish store, end up in some maintenance tank. So they're doing that. There's a lot of people that contact me. They're internet people, and you know they want to buy something from me and, and sell it on the internet. I, I discourage a lot of it because I still. Deal, deal with stores. And one thing I just have trouble with the internet people is some of them just refuse to go into a store. I mean, some of the clubs that I have contacted me, I said, well, you know, you can go into my store over on such and such a street. And they said, oh, no, we won't shop at a store. And what these people don't understand is they can't maintain this industry. The internet can't do it. I don't see how they can. If there's not the mainstay stores giving out the good information and getting people started, then I see that we're going to have problems. And, and the mainstay stores, the little mom-and-pop stores, are having trouble keeping up with these Internet people who come in there with their phones and, and you know, they're boom, they can see the prices and they won't buy. For example, my wife and I were in a, a big chain pet store buying greenies for our dog. And this woman comes walking up. She's got a five-inch Oscar in one hand and one bag. Some guppies in another and some tetras in another. And I just said, oh, gosh, you must have several tanks at home. And that's really cool that, you know, you've you got a bunch of tanks. And, no, no, I just have one. And so, you know, being, me being the smart aleck I am, I said, well, why don't you just take those fish and put them in with the Oscar now and make it easier for them to eat them than chase them around your tank. And she was amazed that that was going to happen when she went home. Well, the little guy who sold her the fish in the back, he didn't do it on purpose. He just didn't know. So this woman could have gone home, put them in her tank been appalled by watching what happened and she, maybe she's out of the industry so we got to have some way of keeping these stores running and at the same time try to convince some of these internet people you know not to just say i'm never going into a store i just won't do it i'd rather buy it pay for the freight pay more money than go into a store and that's where a lot of them are so i see that as a problem you know and as for as far as florida farmers you know more and more fish are coming in from the far east etc there's nothing wrong with that, but it's making it tough, you know, price-wise for farmers here to, to keep going. Uh, I see that happening also. So those are the main things. I And, in fact, it was funny because I was uh, watching a video of after Andrew, and they had a bunch of people from FTFFA down here, and it was almost word for word about the fish that would be coming in and how it's going to make it hard on farmers. So not much. It's, it's, it's been a long-time thing. But that's what I, I think is going to is the problem. Well, th well, thanks for all that all that wisdom, Rick. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank you, Rick, and our producer Mark Winter for making the show possible. Hey, uh, Rick, before we take off, did you have any final words of wisdom or or information? Anything else you wanted to add? No, I think that's it. I'd be you know pretty good thing. Just have African sickles are a lot of fun to keep, closest to salt water and beautiful. So. 
that's why I've loved them all my life for all these 48 years of doing it. Well, that's great. And again, thanks very much, Rick. I really appreciate it. Uh, kind of delving into your past a little bit. Please be sure to check out Rick's web links, which will be found out on his Aquarium Mania guest page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. Until next time, be sure to check out cichlids at your local store. Keep your tanks clean and your fish and other animals healthy. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.